This podcast is brought to you by Hostfully. We make property management software and digital guidebooks. To learn more and sign up for our industry newsletter, please visit Hostfully.com. Hey, fellow hosts. If you want to take your hosting business to the next level, then join the Short-Term Rental Profit Academy. Whether you own, rent, or manage properties, we have the resources, the tools, and the community to help you achieve your goals. The Short-Term Rental Profit Academy is ready for any host, any size, and includes a membership portal with over 50 hours of video lessons, a private Facebook group, and weekly live coaching calls, where Eric and I give you direct feedback and help you solve your biggest challenges. We're all about taking action and getting results. So if you're ready to start crushing it, sign up for our program at strprofitacademy.com. Welcome to Get Paid for Your Pad, the definitive show on Airbnb hosting, featuring the best advice on how to maximize profits from your Airbnb listing, as well as real-life experiences from Airbnb hosts all over the world. Welcome. Get paid for your pad. Get paid for your pad. Get paid for your So welcome everybody to another episode of Get Paid For Your Pad. And this is a very special episode because we have two guests on the show. Uh, they both are a co-founder of Rented. And one of them is a former co-founder of Vacasa as well. So lots of knowledge. And the topic for today is how to optimize revenue. Of course, everybody wants to know, how do I make the most money from my listing or listing portfolio? So I'm super excited to welcome to the show, Mr. Andrew McConnell and Cliff Johnson. Thank you so much for having us. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. I'm excited too. We have a long list of uh, things to go through because obviously maximizing revenue is a very complicated topic, right? I mean, airlines, hotel companies, they have entire teams to figure out what their pricing should be, what their booking settings should be in order to maximize their their revenue. So we're going to dive pretty deep because you guys are probably one of the biggest experts on this topic, right? Because Rented is a revenue management tool and for full service uh, revenue management company. So you guys basically, you manage revenue for hosts, right? For property managers, people with uh, portfolios mostly, right? Exactly. Mostly people managing more than one property. This is their full-time job. And as you know, when it's a full-time job, it, it takes a lot of work across a lot of different areas. So trying to figure out what to keep yourself versus outsource to others that may be able to do it better and or more efficiently is a, a big part of the, the work. Absolutely. All right. So uh, I'm going to quickly list out the different topics that we're going to talk about, and then we're going to dive right in. So first of all, we're going to talk about, you know, what's the difference between a pricing strategy and a revenue management strategy? Uh, we're going to talk about additional fees. That's a question that we get a lot. Cleaning fees, extra guests, all that kind of stuff. We're going to talk about the million dollar question. What's better, a dynamic algorithm that determines prices or you as a person who knows your market better, you might think? What's better? And then number four is we're going to talk about managing versus owning and leasing and you know, which type of model is best in those different types of business models. So lots to talk about, but let's kick it off. Cliff, could you tell me what's the difference between a pricing strategy and a revenue management strategy? 
Yeah, definitely. And thanks for having us. Uh, so really, this comes down to uh, pricing is very specific to the rate that a particular property can command on any given time, given the demand available in the market. And that's, you know, I'm setting my price at $100 for that night, $80, $120, whatever that might be. The revenue management really takes into consideration all of the ancillary factors that influence what that price can be. So that's how are you marketing the property? What are your review scores? What's the cancellation policy? What are the cleaning fees? So it's all of that ancillary information that helps feed to what that price has to be. And so when we talk about revenue management, we feel that you can't separate pricing from revenue management. You need to understand what's being done to position that property in order to price it effectively. Got it. So for example, and let me know if this is correct what I'm saying. So if I have a listing, let's say I have two listings in, in the same market, they're very similar properties. I turn on a pricing algorithm. That algorithm is going to look at data, about, it's going to look at the competitor pricing, all of that. And then it's, recommend, it's going to recommend a price to me. But let's say this one property has one review versus the other property has 50 reviews. So what you're then saying is, well, the property with one review really should have a much lower price than the property with 50 reviews, but the pricing algorithm isn't going to make that distinction. Exactly. Uh, as long as that property with 50 reviews has 50 good reviews, it could be actually a negative thing if it was a, a low review score of 50 reviews. But uh, generally speaking, yes. Okay, got it. All right, sweet. Andrew, do you have any, anything else to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was interesting how you positioned it before about how hotels and airlines have these full teams to manage revenue. And in those industries, you're dealing with highly commoditized inventory. So 33A is not very different from 34A or 32A on the flight. Room number 124 is not different from 126 or 122 at the hotel. With vacation rentals, especially if you're talking single family homes, but even to some extent condos and apartments, the inventory is unique. And to the example you gave, you could have two identical properties in terms of the physical structure, the furniture in them. But when you think about revenue management, it's not just the physical structure. It's what is the guest seeing? How are they seeing it? How are they booking it? So when they go on a search engine, and depending on the algorithm used to serve up search results, one of those properties may show up very differently than the other because one has 50 reviews versus the other. So how we talk about it a lot is in a lot of industries, you're pricing commodity. One banana is not that different than another banana. They can all have the same price. With vacation rentals, we're pricing snowflakes. And just like a snowflake, the snowflake itself changes shape over time as reviews come in, as search algorithms change the whole as seasons change and what what is appealing to guests so that's where price is a number revenue management is a discipline around maximizing the amount you're earning given all that different criteria cliff was just talking about awesome thank you for clarifying that so let's dive into our next topic here additional fees all right so this is a this is a question that we get a lot is people asking us how much should we set our cleaning fee at? Should it be exactly the cost of the cleaning? Should it be a little bit lower? Should it be a little bit higher? Or does it depend on whether we want to go for more short stays versus more longer stays? Cliff, what do you think? 
Right. The short answer is that it depends. <laughs> like one of the things that I always try to push ahead in our industry is the concept of dynamic fees. So similar to pricing, how much you can charge in fees is going to depend on the demand for that property and the services being provided for that fee. But the other answer is that you know it depends on the ownership structure of that property. So if you're getting 100% of that revenue because you own the property and you're managing it yourself, or you lease the property and you have fixed costs, that's a different model than if you're on a commission basis with a homeowner where you can't absorb to you can't absorb a loss on the fee. And so the interesting thing is we also see this change regionally. Uh, in the US, for example, in the Colorado Mountain region, it's not uncommon to see commissions that range from 35 to 50% of the gross rent. Whereas in the Southeast, it's far more compressed down to 10 to 20%. But oftentimes the fees are much higher, uh, such as booking fees or even the cleaning fees in the Southeast as compared to the Western region. And so a lot of it is really that interplay between you know, how you're pricing properties, what expenses you're absorbing as part of your commission structure versus what expenses you're absorbing in the fees. But the, the simplest way to look at it, since most managers really do manage under that commission-based structure, is to ensure that you're not losing money on an incremental reservation on the cleaning fee side. So really setting your cleaning fee to be you know, some fixed margin on top of the actual cost of that clean based on the average hours per clean if you're doing hourly rates. Or uh, a lot of people do piece rate, which is a fixed rate that they'll pay the housekeeper per clean. And so making sure you have a little buffer on that and understanding whether or not your supplies are coming out of that or the supplies are being factored in as part of the commission. But generally, my advice is to include any incremental costs in the cleaning fee or other fee and you know, not trying to recover your fixed costs in that. And so incremental, you know, the uh, credit card fees are another good example. That's where booking fees started for a lot of managers was to cover the processing costs for those uh, credit card fees. Of course, they've gotten uh, pretty out of control over the years. And we see across OTA platforms and several property managers that will have fees over 10% that are just labeled processing fees that are not clearly uh, covering any specific costs, but just covering, you know, giving an additional margin to the manager of the OTA. Got it. And Andrew, can you touch on the extra guest fees? That's a question that we get a lot. Right? When should you start charging for extra guests? Yeah, there are multiple things you're having to balance with any fee, right? So with what you're charging, whether it's on a fee or the nightly rate, you need to make sure as you're doing the work as a business or as a host, you're making money. So you need to know what that math looks like. Back to if you're managing on a commission basis, then that homeowner may also leave you. So there may be times that you trade off and you say, hey, I'm not making a ton of money on this booking, but I need to make this owner enough revenue that they stick with me. And so that starts to get more complicated. And then the third piece is the guest. Is the guest going to ultimately book this, which is going to influence both of those other two? And what is the behavior they're going to exhibit. So I, I think back, Scott Breon at Picasso, who was an early revenue manager there, ran their revenue management team, was talking about how guests say, I hate fees. I absolutely hate when I see a nightly rate. I think I'm booking something and I click through and I see this long list and I don't want that. I want to know exactly what the price is, keep it all clean. 
So they tested it. They said, great, if that's what everybody wants and we're the only ones doing that, that's going to be amazing. Let's go see if this works. And so they go and test it. Now, the issue is once people do a search, they say, I want a three-bedroom place, I want it in this area, and they put everything, then the first thing they typically sort for is price. So if you have an all-in price, it doesn't add in fees anymore. How those search results are showing, you're never on page one. And so their behavior was they never booked the all-in price. They always booked the cheapest nightly rate and then just got frustrated on the back end on the fees. And so you need to think, your business, how are you going to make money? Your owner, if you're managing on behalf of another party, are you going to keep them happy? And then the guests, are, are they feeling nickel and dimed where they're not coming back? Are they feeling like they're getting good value? Like what Cliff was talking about of, hey, it was clear when it was a credit card. I have to charge you 3% because that 3% is disappearing and I have to make money as a business. Once it starts being 10 and I don't know what all is going into it, maybe then I start having a bad taste in my mouth and I'm less likely to come back mm. and stay with you in the future. You're managing multiple parties in that situation. And I think you were referring specifically to the additional guest fees, right? On that yeah. as well. And that's something like I have a, probably a very strong opinion on is that you uh, create the wrong behavior by charging additional guest fees. Essentially, you create an incentive for people to lie to you on the reservation. And saw that time and time again, where you could watch, like, you know, we do a lot of this at Vacasa where we'd look at how are consumers behaving on the site? And some owners were adamant, we got to charge for extra guests. And people would like add the guest, test it, see it, and then abandon it, you know, or move it back down and, and book it anyway. And at that point, are you going to call out a guest and say, hey, we think you actually have three people, not two. We want to charge you that extra bit. It creates an awkward situation for your team. Even if you are going to enforce it operationally, you're probably not going to have a happy guest if they're getting charged extra for the baby they're bringing along or something like that. You know? And there's usually not a lot of incremental expense to having additional guests. Um, you could talk about you know, whether you have to use AC in an additional bedroom or something. But even if you just have two people in the house, they're probably not going to be that conscious about not using you know, the heating or air conditioning as an example, which is going to be the biggest driver of expenses. There's a separate piece too of not only do you might not want to discourage people bringing more guests, but there are ways that people bringing more guests is actually better for you and your business. It could generate additional revenue for you. So if you have partnerships locally, that the more activities people do, you get a, a rev share. So thinking of exploring or something like that, you actually want more people there. You want more people that can go stimulate the local economy, drive uh, business to these other places. If you have something like StayFi, where you're capturing the email of everybody logging into the internet, then all of a sudden you just grew your marketing list. So why would you want to turn off those other four people who could come back and, and stay with you? So if you think about it instead of, I'm trying to discourage people coming and staying in my properties and getting this great experience to, hey, I'm not going to rent this night to anyone else anyway. Bring as many people as you want, as long as you're not throwing parties and doing something that's going to trash the property, you're taking care of the property, then I want you to fully utilize and have a great time at this house. So I would be very against, especially if they're not really true, clear incremental costs, charging for additional guests. I don't know the motivation there. Okay. So you guys seem pretty strongly in favor of no additional uh, guest fees, but then I want to go back to what Cliff mentioned earlier, or maybe maybe you mentioned it. 
So let's say I have a, a four bedroom, right? I can host eight people, but I know that the market for eight person stays is a lot smaller than the market for six person stays or four person stays. So if I'm going to not charge additional guests and I'm going to price my property at a certain level, then isn't it more advantageous for me to drop the price down so I do show up in more searches? And then if more people want to stay, I'll get those extra guest fees. So doesn't it work in my favor in terms of the search results? Yeah, I would have uh, like an alternative proposal to that and something that worked quite well. Um, if the difference is nominal, it's, it's definitely not worth doing. So like if you have a three-bedroom that sleeps six and usually people are booking it with four, creating that additional friction for extra guests really just isn't worthwhile. But let's say you have a six-bedroom, which I think would maybe even highlight what you were saying more, where you can normally sleep 12 guests. And during peak season, that's common. But during off-season, that drops down quite a bit. What I used to do that I thought was quite effective, and the OTAs might not love this, but it's legit, is to create a smaller version of the property. So you can create like a two-bedroom option for people to book and treat it like a parent-child relationship. You actually get additional exposure on the OTAs that way through the additional listing. But I would still keep that six-bedroom at the lower price. It was kind of an, an odd balance between the two. But you might get more people that are like just searching for the two-bedroom, but more than happy to book it, even if it's a six-bedroom, because it's a couple looking for a Sunday through Thursday. So a lot of times when I would do that, it would, it would really be when demand was exceptionally low for larger properties and mostly for midweek stays. So I'd prevent the child listing, the two-bedroom listing from being bookable during periods of peak demand. That way, you know, I'm kind of capturing it either way. It's a different way of getting at that same thing. But even still, you know, to Andrew's point earlier, if, a, if it's unlikely to go booked at the price that a six bedroom would normally command, then I'm dropping the price on that anyway, because you're just setting that right rate. But it is a little different visually, where, you know, someone might be not even seeing that six bedroom because they're thinking that, oh, it's going to be too expensive. It's six bedroom. The cleaning fee will be ridiculous. And that kind of comes back into play where you can actually charge a lower clean fee if you know there are going to be fewer people there because they're searching for a two-bedroom option. And especially, I mean, this is back to just the lighting guess and surprising. When they think in those instances where they thought they booked a two-bedroom and they got this two-bedroom price and they show up and they see the six-bedroom and what they got, I mean, that's on social media. That's people who are looking to come back. That's people that are telling their friends. And especially if you're not locking off those rooms, you could even let them know ahead of time, hey, actually, uh, we didn't have the two bedroom available, but we have this one that looks very similar, six bedrooms, if, if there are other people you want to bring and have that as an additional opportunity. So it's over delivering is not the worst thing to do ever. Awesome. That's great advice. I love it. Over delivering on the, uh, on the expectations. Sweet. Let's, uh, let's move on to the next topic. So this is something that's always being discussed. Every single conference I've been to, every single virtual meetup, you know, when people talk about pricing, they always bring up this point. We have the pricing algorithms. We have ourselves. Who's better at determining prices, right? The one camp says, you know what? I know my market. I know the people that stay in my market. That stupid algorithm that doesn't see what I see. It just looks at a bunch of numbers. It can never be better than myself. 
I'm much smarter. And then some people say, well, the algorithm has data. The algorithm is, is a computer. It can calculate. You know, I can't do all that stuff. I'm going to leave it up to the computer. So that's a million dollar question. Um, Cliff, what's better? Dynamic pricing algorithm or manual? Well, I think what I'll do, uh, I might be biased in this category, but I'll kick it to Andrew. I think he has a really good analogy on this and then I'll dive deeper into the specific nuances. But if you want to talk about your cyborg analogy, I think it's a good one. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I would start off saying it depends on the computer and it depends on the person. If you're using an algorithm that is incredibly basic, like some game on an old Casio 1980s watch, then yes, the person's probably better regardless who that person is. If you're using a super sophisticated bespoke model to properties that look just like yours, that model is going to be better than most people, even if you think you know that market. And so where I always think about it is similar to chess, right? Chess is people thought computers would never be able to get to the level that they could beat the best chess players in the world ever. Those computers will never catch up. Then IBM builds Deep Blue that beats Gary Kasparov, the best player in the world. And there's zero question. Computers from that point on can totally just annihilate humans, even the best humans in chess. Then Gary Kasparov refuses to give up. He said, well, what if you gave me all of the data all of the processing power of those machines and then put a great chess player on top of that. And what they found is, and they call it cyborg chess, no computer today can beat that combination of computer plus person. So it's, it's not a binary, oh, I just set it and forget it technology, or I have to do it with pencil and paper. It's, there is an, a combination, which is what we would call sophisticated revenue management you know, for the 21st century. And I think that's probably where Cliff would be able to speak a little more intelligently than I can on that. Yeah. And I think you outlined it quite eloquently. And I think for me, you know, I, it's a, it's been a learn by example. I mean, when we started Vacasa, that was what, uh, 2010, so 10 years ago, well, yeah, end of 2009, there really wasn't a lot of dynamic pricing out there, but for us, it just felt really natural. I was a tax attorney. Eric was an analyst. So for us, looking at these properties, we saw, okay, demand is low for here. We need to adjust based on that. And we were able to squeeze a significant amount of revenue more through manual intervention. I mean, we were using Escapee as a software when we first launched the company. And there were a lot of barriers to creating rate rules to allow for daily pricing. You know, they've made some changes since then, but still, it was a constant effort and we actually built a lot of tools on top of it to execute the pricing that we wanted to get to. Eventually built our own proprietary software the next year. Eric was uh, deep into that. But we used that combination of the best data that we could get, which was really limited at the time. So our own data really became the catalyst for us building out those first algorithms and understanding, you know, what were the things that we felt we could achieve programmatically, such as, you know, reducing prices on dates that were essentially gap fills. Like if we end up with a random Tuesday, Wednesday that was previously a full week available, that we was clear that demand was lower on that. So eventually we built more and more data that we could use to answer more of those questions in an automated fashion. But we always had a team of revenue analysts executing on top of that and making those subtle adjustments to account for the unique qualities of each property. 
And so when I joined the rented team two and a half years ago, and we had this shared portfolio of properties with guarantees on them, it was uh, too good to pass up just because seeing the opportunities in there where you know, I would see either you know, some of our clients were letting an algorithm just run and missing a lot of opportunity that way, mostly just missing the booking window, either being overpriced for too long or going to you know, ridiculous reductions when they didn't need to, when the demand was still there. So kind of seeing opportunity on both sides when the algorithms would run. But on the other side, when they were just relying on manual intervention, it was oftentimes that they just didn't get to it frequently enough. So they weren't making enough adjustments to optimize revenue. And really what we're looking for as revenue managers is what actions can we take to drive what I call incremental revenue. So it's not you know, just getting the easy stuff. That's what you should automate, like understanding, you know, what's 4th of July? Well, jack it up to, you know, about as high as you can get it to relative to the rest of the market. Um, that's not that hard of a date to price. Capturing midweeks in the like shoulder seasons is where the true talents in a revenue manager play out. It's like understanding what the true booking window is for that time period where you have limited data. And the other side of that is like the smaller the market, the more unique the property, the less data you have to build the right algorithms off. So the data quality issue is probably the biggest barrier for our industry to get to you know, full automation. And I think we're pretty far from that. But the data quality is improving over time. It's just that we're, you know, given that each property is unique and carries its own unique attributes, you only have perfect data for that property. And then it's like, how close are the corollaries to get to that right answer? I would also say this, what full automation quote is, is probably not what a lot of people think. This set and forget to, to the point of airlines and hotels have decades of very, very good data on highly commoditized inventory and systems that these 20 plus billion dollar companies have put a bunch of money into and they still have and need people over top of that. So we think about even autonomous driving right now. It can be very helpful. You can take your hands off, but you know, every now and then the computer doesn't work and you die. And with revenue, that is the lifeblood of your business. Are you really ready to blindly, I'm going to put a blindfold on, I'm not going to look what the computer does in my car? No, you probably wouldn't do that for the life of your business either. So great, let me get the best computer. I want the Tesla automated driving, but I'm going to keep an eye on it because it's, it's way too lethal and dangerous if I don't. Yeah, thankfully, no one dies when we get a price wrong, but someone just gets a cheap vacation. So it's a, a better outcome. But, but still if you consistently do for. it <laughs> and you lose all your owners or you're not covering your cost sure. of your business, then your business could die. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Hello from San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Hostfully. We make property management software and digital guidebooks for companies all around the world. We're grateful to join Jasper in helping property managers get through this tough time with information and insights that can help their business. As a company, we're also trying to find all the ways that we can help. We can share resources, and we're already doing that on our blog. And another idea that the team came up with is using Hostfully guidebooks as local guides for emergency services. So far, we've built guides for Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and also Alcoholics Anonymous. If this is an idea that you'd like to do, we would love to help you out. Please email me at margo at hostfully.com and I can show you how to get started. 
And you can also, of course, sign up for our blog at hostly.com too. We hope that you and your family and loved ones are healthy and happy, and we trust that we are going to get through this together. Take care. All right. I'm going to summarize the strategies, the pricing strategies that I have seen uh, that people most typically use. You guys can rate them from worst to best, all right? So I'll name them right now. So we have um, the first strategy is use literally put one price for every single day. Every single day is the same price, right? Then there's, you make some adjustments, like you put the weekends a little bit different than the weekdays and you do some seasonal adjustments, right? This is all manual, no data, no algorithm. Then number three is you do it manually, but you also put in like last minute pricing, you lower the prices for, you know, little gaps in the calendar that are hard to find. Let's call that manual dynamics or human, human chess, you know, in terms of Andrew's analogy. And then there's the, you use a pricing tool, but you just kind of, you put a base price in there and you just let it, put the prices around the base price and you just don't really look at it. Uh, I guess that would be the, the deep blue. And then number five is you use the, the pricing tools in combination with your own judgment. So that would be the cyborg chess in Andrew's yes. analogy. Did I just mention those strategies going from bad to best or is there some, some nuances? I would say at a high level, yes. Now, once you start getting to the best, like the number one, which I would say is like playing tic-tac-toe, number two, checkers, then you get into chess and the level of sophistication of the chess, where it may make sense not to put more human resources and or even more expensive tech is if you don't have much pricing power to begin with, the owner says, hey, this is my rate. Well, then I can't do much with that. So it doesn't make sense to pay for systems or somebody to oversee if it's a property that you only have a very limited window to book, then maybe I don't pay for the technology, I just do that manually. Or it's a property that only brings in so much revenue, then maybe it doesn't make sense to, for me to put a person on it because there's just not enough revenue to generate to justify that person manually doing it. So in an instance where you have enough latitude, enough freedom on being flexible on pricing, and you're generating enough revenue from it, and you have a long enough kind of calendar, then yes, I would say that's worst to best. But there are instances where the best answer in terms of most economically efficient answer could be something in between, would be my caveat to that. And I might just add that I think that there's a battle between three and four right now, three being like sophisticated human pricing versus automation. Um, because a lot of it depends on the quality of the human skill set or the quality of the algorithm you're using relative to the market that you're in or the property that you're pricing. Because there's an element of, of human intervention, even in all the, these pricing tools, to set the right base rate. So if you set the wrong base rate initially, even if it's a really strong algorithm, you're going to get the wrong rates in there. We, we run into this because we talk to people that are considering different options for revenue management, whether that's hiring someone internal or using a tool or some combination they're in. And there's a lot of, uh, I would say, trust issues. You know, People that might have tried a tool early on that were burned by it, and whether they were burned by it because they didn't intervene enough or monitor it, or because the tool wasn't far enough along yet, whatever that might be. 
like with anything in your business, whether it's pricing or, or, you know, if you hire an external accountant or something like that, I mean, you have to exercise some level of quality assurance monitoring to ensure that the results are, are what you anticipate they would be. I mean, if somebody's consistently filing your taxes two months late or something, you're going to say, well, well, I hired them to do it. I automated it. It's working, you know, as it should. You'll, you'll notice that. And so you can't just turn your mind off, you know, whether you've hired a revenue manager or a tool or whatever it is. And this may be a kind of arcane analogy, but if you're thinking of your property management system and you're deciding which one to sign up for, do you want to sign up for the one with the most features or the one that has the right features for your business, for how you run your business? It actually fits what you need because you may only need these five things. So it doesn't matter that it has these million other things. I, I need the one that has these five things. It's best for my business. And I think it comes similarly when you're thinking about the pricing technology or an algorithm of, I don't care how many properties you price all over the world or all over whatever country. I want to know the properties I have, you're pricing well. Are you really good at pricing these properties? Because the only ones I care about are mine. And so if you don't have any data and you have no sophistication and no custom comp sets for my market, why would I think that you're going to price better than me when I've been here and I'm operating? I know the seasonal changes. I know my properties. If you don't know my properties, there's no way you're going to be better than me. But on the other hand, if they have not just your data, but all the data for that market and they can have different models across that market. So they're really pricing very much around what you have and can extract additional value. Then I think you end up with a different answer. It's not a blanket rule there. Right. And it also depends on your property type. It depends on the market. Just as a simple example, I actually stayed at a castle a couple of weeks ago, believe it or not. But here in Spain, you can rent castles. So I imagine if I would manage this, this castle, you know, I, I don't know if a pricing algorithm is going to do me much good because what is it going to compare to, right? I mean, it might pick up, Still some, you know, like, for example, there are special dates like holidays and, you know, stuff like that. Just like kind of general demand factors would be a factor. But other than that, it wouldn't really be that much help, right? And you mentioned earlier, finding an optimal pricing strategy for something that's a commodity is much easier than for something that's very unique, right? So is it true then that the more unique your property and the smaller your market, the more you should bias to your own judgment versus following an algorithm? I'd say that's generally true. But the thing you raised about the castle is that it is going to be helpful in showing you seasonality. So mm -hmm. seasonality uh, fingerprints tend to match across inventory. It's better if you can get into you know, what is the closest comp set. So for example, in a castle, it might be that people are considering staying a castle or another really uh, unique oceanfront property or whatever it might be, you know. So that might have a different seasonality curve than a, a condo. So there is a point, like it's really interesting to know like that fine line between where is the cutoff point of something having useful data. But aggregated market data is really helpful to show you total demand on that. And generally, yeah, I think, you know, something as, as unique as a castle, you're going to want a lot of uh, manual intervention on top of on that, for sure. Awesome. Well, this has been really interesting. I think we've touched on a lot of different topics. Before we let you guys go, is there anything else you wanted to comment on? Anything, you know, really relevant that we haven't touched on yet? 
I had one more thought on that castle is that the incremental cost of having another night booked is probably quite high. Castles tend to not be that efficient in terms of energy. <laughs> so that's something that I remember having a few properties on that with pool heat and other things where you have those tough decisions where there are high operating costs or something. And so in some ways they create this artificial floor, you know, Right. Uh, so it can be an interesting thing to work around. Like guests a lot of times would be willing to pay for pool heat in the middle of winter, for example. You know, So there's some times where you can carve it out and give that option to the guests. Say, hey, we're going to give you a deal on this, but we can't afford to take a loss on it. So, And as long as you explain it effectively to the guests, they tend to be understanding of that. That castle thing too, and this is where revenue management versus just pricing of once people book potentially, and then looking at your calendar, if you have a gap night between two bookings and you can cover it, then reaching out to the guests on either end of, hey, don't know if your trip's flexible, but I can give you this extra night for X, which is almost going to be 100% marginal profit. So really, even if the pricing is getting you 80, 90% there, diving in to look at your business of what I'm really trying to do overall as a business is make the most money possible. Just there's so much being left on the table today, I guess, is the only thing I would say there. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really good one. That's one of my favorite ways to fill up my calendar is uh, reaching out to those, uh, to those guests on either side of the gaps and, and offering those extra nights to them. And I think one thing that we haven't touched on that a lot of people, I think, tend to forget as well is that you know, when you get a booking, it really has two values. It has direct value, direct monetary value. But it also has some future value because a booking leads to a chance of another booking, right? Because it helps you get the review, it helps you move up in the search results. So, you know, I guess whenever you get a booking, you should really attribute some of that value to a booking in the, that you got in the past. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Definitely. I think the more we get as an industry to thinking about lifetime value um, for both owners and guests, we're going to be in a lot better shape and we're going to take better care of both of them. Because when you actually look at that data uh, and the value of a bad experience for a guest is exponential as well, like in the sense of it's very unlikely that a bad experience is going to stay with one person. They're probably going to tell other people about it. They will remember your name if they have a bad experience. Very rarely do they if they have a positive experience. They'll still think they stayed at an Airbnb or a BRBO. <laughs> So it's like that point about you reaching out directly to give them that incremental uh, late checkout, early check-in and doing it complimentary as much as you can under your business model adds a lot of goodwill. And that's the thing that people remember. They remember the surprise and delight more than anything else. And this is kind of a marketing, but I don't think we do it enough. And we have the opportunity because they're in the home. So we could, there's a lot of creative things we can do for our guests and our owners if we know they're coming to town or whatever. Yeah. yeah. 100%. So just to finish up here, do you want to let people know what does Rented do exactly? Who do you guys cater to? Where can people go if they want to get in touch with you guys? Rented.com is the best place to go to, to get in touch. That's the website for the company. And they can certainly reach out through there. And then what we do is uh, our core service is full end-to-end revenue management. So not only is it the data and the technology, but our team is actually executing against that. So uh, for managers or people managing maybe 10 to 1,000 properties, it doesn't necessarily make sense to do that in-house because they can't get the same kind of talent, can't access the data scientists, the data analysts, revenue managers. So 
we provide that full end-to-end service for them. We also, you'll be the first we're sharing this with kind of in podcast form, we're launching the technology our team uses as its own standalone product. For those that want to keep the revenue management discipline in-house, this is the first technology built for revenue management, not just automated pricing, but it has the, the data models and everything behind it, but it's built for people who want to do proper revenue management. That's awesome. And do you guys cater to larger managers or to individual hosts as well? It really is that 10 properties kind of that's that typically it doesn't necessarily make sense until you have about 10 properties and then up to once you have more than a thousand or more than 2000, a lot of times they build stuff internally. So we're really kind of right. in between 10 properties under management or a thousand. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure having you guys as a, in the, in our technology council and the short term rental legend mastermind as well. And uh, I'm excited to see that new project that you guys are coming out with. And uh, I want to thank you for your time and the listeners, of course, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode and next week there's going to be another one. So see you then. Thank you. Thank you. Get paid for your pet. 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 Hey, fellow hosts, if you want to take your hosting business to the next level, then join the Short-Term Rental Profit Academy. Whether you own, rent, or manage properties, we have the resources, the tools, and the community to help you achieve your goals. The Short-Term Rental Profit Academy is ready for any host, any size, and includes a membership portal with over 50 hours of video lessons, a private Facebook group, and weekly live coaching calls where Eric and I give you direct feedback and help you solve your biggest challenges. We're all about taking action and getting results. So if you're ready to start crushing it, sign up for our program at strprofitacademy.com.